Last night, about 7.30, I received a call from Brother Joe. Didn't think too much about it. He said, you know, Adele is not feeling well. She's got a low-grade fever, sore throat, you know, sinus stuff. Kids do that all the time. But he said, I'm starting to feel a little bit raspy and, and tough, too. I said, okay. So at that time, I started just looking because I learned a long time ago that when a pastor calls and says, I'm not feeling well on Saturday night, start, re start getting ready. And then as I was looking through my files, you know, the preachers always have something they can pull out. But this is a sermon that I'd worked on a long time ago and never really, I've never preached it. But I worked on it a long time ago. I could tell from the handwriting. It was all handwritten. It was not typed. So I knew it was quite a while back. So at 10.30, as I was reading and doing this, I received a confirmation call. We're going to stay home. I said, okay, that's great. That's fine. And I responded back in my mind to the motto of Trinity College when I went there in the 70s. You say, you're that old? Yeah, I'm that old. Some of you are older. Uh, but back then, the motto of Trinity College was, be ready to pray, preach, sing, or die at a moment's notice. And so that's been our motto, Karen and I, through our ministry. There have been many times something would happen as we were, if we were worship leaders. Something would happen. Maybe the person was supposed to sing a solo that morning. They got sick. Guess what? We have to fill in. Or we go to a church to visit, the pianist is not uh, feeling well. Karen, can you play the piano for us? Sure, no problem. So be ready to pre-preach, die, or sing at a moment's notice. As we look at our passage today, before we get into this, I want to pray and ask God to bless this. Because I think God has a special, because it was not by chance that he opened my eyes to this particular message. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even when things seem out of sorts, you make sense of it. Lord, as the old gospel song says, you made something beautiful out of the rags of my life. Lord, you can create beauty out of ashes. You can bring joy out of heartache. So, Father, today as we look at your word, bring glory to yourself and may your spirit speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 2 Kings 4, 38-41. Elisha, the secret of misery... Now, it's no secret that we, as a world, has been in a time of what you might call misery for the last month, few months, you know, since, actually it started in January, but March, since March, you know, there's been people locked down, they, people not being able to go back and do normal things, uh, you have to order groceries, I mean, who would have thought years, you know, a few years ago that most people would be ordering their groceries and have them delivered, you know, that was not even on the agenda. So things seem kind of miserable right now. We want to, you know, everybody say, oh, I want to get back to normal. Well, that day's coming. That day's coming. I don't know when it is. 
And it may be, let me say this, it may be normal when Jesus comes back. He may wait until then to make things normal again. And what a day that will be when Jesus, I will see. Amen? So by way of introduction, Elijah. Now we have two prophets here, Elisha and Elijah. Elisha was, Elijah was a Tishbite that ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel from about 870 to 842 B.C. And remember, in the B.C. side of time, it goes backwards. Okay, A.D. goes forwards. It was during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. You've probably heard of those people. They were one of the most wicked couples that ever ruled in Israel, the northern kingdom. Elijah's name means the Lord is my God. His life matched his name. He, he was used by God in a mighty way. And God's plan for Elijah was that he not taste death, but was taken up by a chariot of fire, the Bible tells us. Now, Elisha, his cohort, the one that ran around with him and was his sidekick, was promised that if he saw Elijah's departure, he would receive a double portion of the power of God, of what Elisha, Elijah had. And Elijah, as Elijah disappeared into the clouds, Elisha picked up the mantle of Elijah. The mantle was a coat, like a coat. And he put it on, and the miracles started happening. This was a transition in Israel from Elijah to Elisha. Now, Elisha's name means God is my salvation. And we'll see that that's, that fits so perfectly in a moment. Elisha was now in charge of the school of the prophets, which had been around since the time of Samuel. Now, this was a school for training prophets to, to do how to, how to profit, how to do a prophet, you know. Teachers teach, preachers preach, so I guess prophets prof. I don't know. But Elijah's ministry was that, like that of John the Baptist. And Elisha's ministry was like that of Jesus, hidden for a while and then bursting on the scene with great impact. Now, in our passage today, Elisha had returned to Gilgal to minister to the sons of the prophets. There, were, there was a great famine in the land during this time. Even the sons of the prophets, these men of God, were experiencing difficulties and effects of the famine. Now, th this passage that we're looking at is in the middle of a bunch of miracles that Elisha performs. We see in, earlier in the chapter the woman that is barren. He said, a year from now you'll be holding a son, and it happened. There was a young man, a child that died. Elisha raised the child to, to life. Naaman developed leprosy, and his body was healed. They were working out. The sons of the prophets were working out one day, chopping wood. And you all ever chopped wood before? Take an axe and you chop wood? They weren't fortunate enough to have a saw. They had to chop it. Well, as they were chopping it, first of all, it was a borrowed axe. Second of all, the axe head fell off. Now, it just so happened that they were chopping wood down by the creek. And the creek was deep. The axe head fell in the creek. What do we do now? We don't have an axe to chop firewood. What do we do? Elisha did his thing and prayed, and guess what? The axe head floated. So these are the type of miracles that Elisha is doing during this time. Elisha appears 
His, his appearance brought change. Well, let's look at see what it represents. Look at verse 38 in our text. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servants, Set on the large pot and boil the stew for the sons of the prophets. The first thing we see is God's sovereign provision. God's sovereign provision. Listen, God is never embarrassed by human need. Never. Elisha's presence requested, represents the voice of hope in a time of famine. God has always matched human bankruptcy with divine sufficiency, meeting the hunger of man on every level of their life. This passage shows us that the sovereign God supplies our needs by influencing our lives. How do we do that? As we read in verse 38, the first thing we see, the first influence we see in God's provision is a purifying influence. Now, 2 Kings chapter 8 tells us this about the famine. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son had restored to life, Arise and depart to, with your household, and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. Now, in our country, we have had some famines, I mean, famines and, and droughts and things like that, but we've never experienced a real, what, what I'd call a famine in this country. There's always been food to get somewhere. But these people, this famine came up the, on the country on the countryside for seven long years now famine represents God's judgment God's judgment on human sin even though God's people were wicked and not following God's ways God still provided for his people for in Genesis 41 we see Jacob and his family was provided for through Joseph during a horrendous famine God's sovereign plan had allowed Joseph the youngest son, to be captured and sold into slavery in Egypt and eventually became second in command in all of Egypt. And because of his position and wisdom, Egypt had plenty of food. And because the famine was so great where uh, Jacob and, his fam and Joseph's family was, they all decided to go see their brother, see Joseph. And guess what? God provided for them in a miraculous way. In Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 23, during the ninth plague, which was the plague of darkness, God told Moses to stretch out his hand toward heaven so that darkness would descend upon the land, the whole land. And the Bible tells us that it was pitch dark for three days. How dark is pitch dark? Pitch dark is so dark that you can't see anybody in front of you. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And the Bible says here in this passage that it was so dark that they could not see one another, nor did anyone move from their place for three days. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? You've got to stay in your house. You've got to stay wherever. Stay there. Okay, wait till it passes. Okay. But listen to these words at the last part of that passage. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. God's sovereign provision. 1 Kings chapter 17 Elijah is prophesying to Abraham, Ahab, sorry, not Abraham, Ahab. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. God then provided for Elijah by leading him to the brook Cherith. 
with water in it during a drought. And God commanded the ravens, the Bible tells us, to feed Elijah while he was there. The Bible says that Elijah obeyed God, and God fed him with the bread and meat morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. Listen, God always provides for his people even in the midst of the direst of circumstances. Always. Psalms 84 says this. 84.11 For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Again in Psalm 37 verse 25. I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. God always provides for those who meet his conditions. Now sometimes he will allow his children, his people, to go through a period of time of trial and testing. He did that with the children of Israel in the wilderness. They disobeyed God and because they disobeyed God as far as the promised land goes, they had to go into the wilderness You're going to spend one year for every day that you wandered here. You're going to spend one year in the wilderness. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness. But they never had shoes wear out on them. They never. They got thirsty at times. Real thirsty. Moses, we're thirsty. God says, go. First of all, he said, speak to the rock. And Moses got mad and hit the rock. That's one of the reasons why Moses couldn't go into the promised land. But God provided water for them. God provided food for them in the manna. Manna, bread from heaven, angel's food. When they got tired of that, God gave them meat to eat. They got tired of that, God gave them manna again. So God always provides in the direst of circumstances for his people. And in this sense, his provision is a purifying influence to his people. The second thing about God's provision, it's a unifying influence. Look at what he said here in verse 38. Elijah said to his servant, set a large pot on the fire. He didn't just say any pot. He said a large pot. Now, having been a chef for many years, I know what large pots are. It's nothing you have in your kitchen at home, I guarantee you. I remember one time when I was fairly young in in doing that kind of work, and we made, we had a school, I was working at Trinity College, in fact, and I was in, working in the kitchen with the head chef there, and we were going to make chop suey for 100 people. Do you know how big of a pot you need to make chop suey for 100 people? That's about 40 quarts. Figure that out. That's 10 gallons of chop suey, besides the rice and the other things that go with it. So I understand. In fact, my picture of this, my grandmother had an old cast iron pot in her front yard. It was a big round thing. It had little pegs on the bottom for her feet. She had planted flowers in it. But years ago, they used it to put it on the fire and to wash clothes in it. It was a wash pot. Some of you know what I'm talking about. uh, Yeah, some of you know. Some of you probably used one of those too. Well, that's the picture I have of these people. They have this cast iron pot, this big cast iron pot that probably holds five or six gallons. You know, a lot of, I don't know how many people were in the school of the prophets. But God's blessings are conditional. 
He always uses the same means of supplying needs. We have one Calvary. We have one Christ. We have one Pentecost. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, we have these words. We being many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Jesus said in John 6, I am the what? The bread of life. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Listen, in God and Christ, we are always unified. There's nothing that brings dishonor to God and his name more than a church that is divided amongst itself about stupid things. I don't like the color of that carpet. Repainting the sanctuary. Oh, I don't like that color. I want another color. I'd rather have chairs than pews. No, I want the pews. I want the chair. And on and on it goes. Listen, let me tell you. There's two things that divide a church faster than anything. Money and music. Those two things divide a church more than anything. I don't like the type of music that our guy's doing. I wish he'd do more of the old stuff. Then you have the other side say, well, I don't like that old stuff. It's too slow. It's too boring. I want some fast stuff. I want some good stuff. Listen, God gets glory when God's people are unified. Listen, I guarantee you last week in our members meeting, God received glory from that. Because I can tell you, I've been a part of some meetings in some churches that were knocked down, drag out, nasty. And it's not pretty. And it's not a good testimony to those around. They wonder, why aren't people coming? Why don't they come to our church? They probably see right through what's going on in the church. So a unifying influence. Nextly in verse 38, we see the satisfying influence. He said, put on a big pot and boil the stew. Now let me say this to you. You can cut up the vegetables. You can put the stock in it. You can put the meat in it. Whatever you're going to put in it. If you don't cook it, it's not worth a hill of beans. In the midst of famine and distress, there's always enough. He said, put the big pot on, put the big pot on, and boil the stew. Listen, God's provision is always satisfying. Psalm 145, verse 16 says this, You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Listen, satisfaction of our spirit with his life. We have satisfaction of our hearts with his love. We have satisfaction of our wills with his freedom. We have satisfaction of our bodies with his health. He is all sufficient for us. Everything about Christ is sufficient. In Colossians, Paul shows us the sufficiency of Christ. He said, all things were created by him. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. All humanity can be made complete in him. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. All things are under the authority of Christ. And all our sins are forgiven through Christ. So you see, we see a satisfying influence 
through the sovereign provision of our God. But here is where man spoils the picture. God's satisfying provision. Now we see in verses 39 and 40, man's sinful intrusion. Look at verse 39 and 40. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from its lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up in the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some of them for the men to eat. And while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Listen, there's nothing worse than fixing a meal. And I don't know, whatever you do to it, maybe you scorch it, burn it, whatever. You get it all, you put all this time and effort into it, and you sit down to eat it, and it's not edible. There's nothing worse than that. Especially if it's a special day. Thanksgiving, holiday, Christmas, Easter. You know, those days when people usually have big meals. I, don't, I know none of you have ever done that before, right? None of you have ever done that. Listen, human nature not only tries to improve on God's provision, but tries to intrude on God's purpose. When this happens, we poison the stew, as it were. The gourd in this passage is believed to be, as rendered by the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, a wild pumpkin. It's similar to the size of those sons of the prophets would normally gather, but this particular species is about the size and color of an orange and has a hard, woody shell. Inside the pulp, or the meat of the pumpkin of this gourd, is very bitter and drastically purgative. You say, what is that? Think Ipecac. If you know what that is, you know what I'm talking about. No wonder they said, there's poison in the stew. We're going to die. Have you ever gotten sick to the point where your, your stomach was upset and everything, and you were just heaving and heaving and heaving, and you think, you just, I'm just going to die if I don't get over this? That's what was happening. So how can we see man's sinful intrusion in the word of God the first one we see is Adam and Eve they intrude with self-glory Genesis 3 Genesis 3 gives us a picture of Satan as he enters the Garden of Eden is in the Garden of Eden Eve comes along and has a conversation with the serpent as the conversation progresses Eve was convinced that God didn't know what he was talking about this is what the word says but the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil Adam and Eve believed the devil and ate the forbidden fruit now, we really don't know what kind of fruit it was but I can tell you this it wasn't the apple on the tree that caused the problem but the pear on the ground you'll get that in a minute you know Adam and Eve, pear on the ground? Okay. Okay, thank you. Romans 5 is the New Testament commentary about this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. The Bible says through Adam... 
all people have sinned. They're born into sin. From the time we are conceived, we are born into sin. Adam's intrusion brought death to the pot of life. In response to the satanic temptation, there was a desire for self-glory which brings death. And that death is both physical and spiritual. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. The second picture we see in the Bible is Nadab and Abihu. You say, who is that? I'll tell you. They have self-effort. They try to do it on their own. In Leviticus 10, we see the story of two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Aaron was the high priest. Listen to these words from Leviticus. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire, some translations say strange fire, before the Lord when he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. There were two people under the godly influence of their godly father, Nadab and Abihu, under the influence of Aaron, the high priest. They knew God's teaching about sacred things. They knew it. Like the back of their hand, they knew it. God has set them apart to serve as priests. They had a family pedigree for this ministry. They dressed the part. They served in sacrificial ministry. They they looked and acted just like they were supposed to. Exodus 30 tells us of the altar of incense and God's standard for this piece of tabernacle furniture. That's the altar that they're talking about, the altar of incense, which was in the tabernacle. Listen to these words. You shall not offer unauthorized fire or strange fire on it or a burnt offering Or grain offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. These two, Nadab and Abihu, for some reason shrugged off the warning and paid dearly for it. Self-effort led them to do things their way. Do not depend upon self. Hophni and Phinehas. Here we see a self-pleasing couple of people these were the sons of the prophet Eli they were all priests to the Lord first Samuel 2 tells us that we what we need to know about this now the sons of Eli were worthless men they did not know the Lord how sad is it to have someone standing in a pulpit and preaching or someone leading worship in a church or teaching Sunday school or whatever the case may be, serving in a church somewhere and do not know the Lord. How sad is that? But we know it's a great possibility because Jesus said, many will say unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done many great things in your name? Well, I preached in your name, Lord. I led music in your name. I sang solos. I taught Sunday school. I watched the nursery. The Bible says Jesus is going to look at them and say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. This account goes on to tell how these priests, Hophni and Phinehas, were committing fornication at the entrance of the tabernacle. The plot thickens as we read where God is going to punish the household of Eli forever because he knew of their dealings 
and did not restrain them. The father did not, he knew of it, but he didn't restrain them. Weak parenting and self-pleasing attitudes led them to becoming corrupt and vile. God had these two killed at the hands of the Philistines when they captured the Ark of the Covenant from Israel. Self-pleasing, self-pleasing, self-pleasing heart is opposite of living to the pleasure of God. Romans 15.3 says this, Even Christ did not please himself. Who did he please? He pleased God the Father, his Father. One more example, Uzzah gives us a picture of self-reliance, self-reliance. 2 Samuel 6 tells us of Uzzah, that's a mouthful. He was aware of how the ark was to be transported and handled. Numbers 4 gives us God's instructions about the ark of the covenant. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings, as camp sets out, after the sons of Kohath, shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. The ark was being transported back to Jerusalem by David and 30,000 chosen men after he had recaptured it from the Philistines. Uzzah and one other person were driving a new cart with oxen with the ark on top of it. That was not God's intended manner of transport. His intended manner of transport, if you read is two poles through the rings on the gold rings on the ark to be borne on the shoulders of four men. That's the proper method. And it only the men, only men to do it are the Levites and those of the family of Kohath. They, they came to a rough patch in the road. And they didn't have paving back then, you know, so it was a rough patch. It was a rough road. And the ox, the Bible says the oxen stumbled. And the ark wobbled. And just Uzzah reached out to keep the ark from falling. Listen to what the Bible says. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died beside the ark of God. Self-reliance. Uzzah's reaction was not a premeditated act of defiance. But just a reflex action. Listen, we would have claimed him to be a hero. But let me say this. The mud and the ground would not desecrate the ark, but the touch of a sinful, unholy man would. He violated God's commands. This is a picture of divine justice. Self-reliance will always lead you down the wrong path. For the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin brings death to the pot of life. The poison of sin is at work at the heart of, in the heart of society today. All you got to do is look around. Everywhere you look, there's moral corruption. There's indifference. There's sickness. There's suffering. There's fear. There's panic. And so on and so on and so on. People are weighed down with the guilt and problems just wanting and waiting for a saving influence. Hunger and starvation was on the horizon for many of the Philistines or the Philistines that day. When man gets his hands in the mix, he brings death to the pot. So we see the sovereign provision and man's sinful intrusion. 
For in our passage it says, One of them went into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine, and gathered a lap full of wild gourds, came and cut them up into the pot of stew. And while they were eating the stew, they cried out, There is death in the pot. Man's sinful intrusion. But lastly, there's hope. And here it is. Faith's simple solution. Look at verse 41. He said, then bring flour, and he threw it into the pot and said, pour, some of the, pour out for some of the men for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. The first thing he said, get some flour. So why flour? Some translations use the word meal. Similar in its context here. The using of flour in and of itself probably did not make the stew edible. But the cure came through the flour. For the act of obedience to God purified the food in the pot. Obedience is the way to God's heart. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams. Flour in the scripture is a type of Christ in his resurrection life and power. It's the result of crushing and grinding the wheat and the cor- or the corn. Wow, think about that. Putting flour in the pot is a picture of what Christ did at Calvary. The Bible tells us he was beaten and bruised till he was unrecognizable. They whipped him so much his back, skin, muscles, and all were gone off of his back. Blood spewing out from the veins and arteries in his back. Nailed him to a tree, a cross. Nails in both hands, both feet. Crown of thorns on his head. Just think about that for a moment. He was beaten and bruised. He was crushed and bruised. His body was bleeding. And he poured out the sacrifice, the blood, as the perfect lamb became the sacrifice for you and for me. What a miracle. No more poison in the stew. Listen, because of what Christ did, he died. He was buried and he rose again. Because of that, there is no more poison of sin in people's life. What a miracle. And because of that miracle, Elisha gives orders. He said, eat the stew. One passage said, and and our passage goes on at the end and says, there was no harm in the pot couple of things about faith's simple solution. Trusting Christ to conquer the power of death. Bring some flour and serve the people. By our identification with Christ, his death and resurrection, we can know complete victory over death. Trusting Christ to cancel the poison of sin. Verse 41 says, therefore there's nothing harmful in the pot. We not only have forgiveness in the past, but my friend, we have experienced daily deliverance and forgiveness every day of our lives as a child of God. 
Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit is life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Trust Christ to cancel the poison of sin, and trust Christ to control your life. Our text says, serve it to the people that they may eat. Listen, food is life and healing to the sons of the prophets. Food, natural food, is life to us. But I'm here to tell you that spiritual food is life and healing to the people of God. As we partake of the life of Christ daily, his life becomes a ministry to others through us. For 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12 says this, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our moral flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. How do we apply this? The Bible teaches us that God is a sovereign provider. His provision purifies us. His provision unifies us. There's one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He satisfies us. All sufficiency is found in Jesus Christ. He wants to give blessings to the uttermost. He wants to give you blessings to the point where it's Shaken, pressed down, shaken, and running over. Blessings to the other most. So the Bible teaches us that God is a sovereign provider. Secondly, the Bible teaches us that man is selfish, and this always leads to death. Man always thwarts God's purpose by intruding into things and areas that God forbids. Thirdly, the Bible teaches us that faith in Christ is the answer to every aspect of our life. Every aspect of our life. Sin is a poison, and the only antidote is Christ crucified, risen, and reigning in our lives forever and ever. For Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Meaning, when Christ was crucified, I was crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And this life I live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, life today seems miserable because of all that's going on around us. You want to know the secret of misery? It's Jesus Christ. We have COVID-19. We have a weird election thing going on. Doom and gloom being proclaimed all over the world. God is the sovereign provider. Even when sinful man intrudes and messes things up, our trust in Christ is worth more. Get that? More than all this world has to offer. Listen, you cannot go. You're, you're, 
Your Medicare Advantage plan does not cover a treatment for sin. Your PPO doesn't cover a treatment for sin. But the great physician takes care of that. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit. And one day, Jesus himself is coming again. For if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. God's sovereign provision in the middle of misery is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, there's so many reasons that we could praise you and thank you. We thank you for giving us your son, who is your provision, your sovereign provision for sin in the pot, poison in the pot of life. Father, may we not live our lives as self-reliant, self-sufficient, selfish people. But may we live our lives through Jesus Christ, who loves us and gave himself for us. May your word continue to work in our hearts as we sing this time of worship. In Jesus' name.